Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking Arsenal R.I.P., Open Cup Romance, Crocker Official, Owner Influence, U.S. Playing Style, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how you doing on this Wednesday, April 26th in the year 2023? Doing well. A busy day for me. As soon as we're done taping, I'm headed over to the Fox lot to cover CCL. You're ecstatic about this. I can I, I can tell. Uh, big day of soccer, though. There's lots to talk about. But uh, in the uh, in the last couple of days, uh, you read anything or seen anything uh, of note? I watched the latest episode of Ted Lasso. A lot of people have. Very good. Hearing a lot of good things. Yeah. Also, I haven't watched this yet, but the final season of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel dropped on Amazon Prime, so I can't wait. In to totality, start that. or it's starting? To, uh, to, I think to they released season. the first four episodes. Got it. Got it. But you're already into it. You, you've you're caught up to this, right? Um, yep. And I think, if I remember correctly, you give this two thumbs up. Really big really fan good. of the show. Yeah. Big fan, big fan of the show. I I did not watch anything of note. I'm not saying I didn't watch anything, but nothing that really comes to mind or that I jotted down to uh, relate to the to the good folks out there. Although, uh, follow up on something we talked about earlier in the week. I had mentioned the, you know, the uh, Twitter blue, the, uh, the checkmark thing there and stuff like that. Uh, well, I, I came to the decision. Yes, I have, I have signed up for it. Uh, Elon has my money. So I expect my, my world to fundamentally change if, and when it <laughs> comes, well, he's already charged my card, but the blue has not shown up yet. Uh, but I will be verified. So when you are on Twitter, and I know a lot of you are, and you're conversing back and forth with me, just know that, yes, it is indeed me, and I will be verified and uh, living in that rarefied type of air that anybody can evidently live in it if you have uh, $8 a month. So I did that. I mean, and as I said before, I, I like the platform. I like the business, and uh, I've been using it for years. And so if I'm going to spend money, I'm going to spend it where... Uh, I think it counts. So uh, look, look for that. I hope, I hope I get this thing. I mean, I signed up for it. I, I, it says it takes you know twenty four hours or something like that to click in. So I hope you know by the time you're listening to this that I am officially blue checked going uh, going forward. All right, lots of stuff to talk about. Ready to light this candle? Let's do it. All right, where should we start first? On our last podcast, we were ninety nine percent sure that Matt Crocker was going to become U.S. Soccer's next sporting director, but we had to hedge a little bit because it wasn't official. Official, well, it became official on Tuesday. He was introduced at a press conference. I have uh, some thoughts, but I'll let you go first. What were your overall impressions on the Welshman? My overall uh, impressions 
and my initial impressions uh, were good and positive in a bland, milk toast, uh, non <laughs> uh, controversial type of way. And look, I, I, it's, it's a difficult situation to a certain extent for him to be in. But you know, this was after, as we have you said, a, a long process, relatively long process. And finally, you have a warm body. Uh, to be to put in front of the public, and you know, I was on the initial call uh, along with you know, hundred other uh, media folks there, and you know, some of the the usual questions and the questions to be expected were asked, and he gave answers that were you know much more thirty thousand foot and generalized, and very few specifics, very few details. However. Within his presentation, he came off as comfortable. He came off as um, smart. He came off as excited about the opportunity. And all of those things, I think, were good. But there was very little meat there in terms of what he said. And you could have plugged it in from a million other press conferences that really don't say anything. So I, I look forward to seeing if there is more behind the scenes there in terms of the way that he is thinking and not just the stuff that he learns because he made a point of oftentimes saying you know I'm going to learn and and he's absolutely going to learn he is a year from now he he will be doing the job in a very different way than I know he hasn't come on full time officially yet but the way that he thinks about the job today I I totally get get that but he got the job and I think myself and others were kind of hoping that we would gain a little bit more insight into how that process happened and more importantly the way that he thinks about US soccer. So for example at one point you know you get to ask ask a question. And I tried to make it as specific as I could and I asked him give me one thing that US soccer does well and give me one thing that US soccer does not do well. And it's not a it's not a gotcha type of question, okay? But you are coming in and Theoretically, you went through this process in which you were asked to assess U.S. soccer and all of the things that you would be in, uh, be responsible for in this capacity. And I'm assuming that they asked you in your capacity from the outside, what do you see as good and bad? And I don't think it's a, a problem to state both the good and the bad of what you see. And it's not dumping on anybody else. But you know, he he avoided the question and kind of went on, as he did with a lot of the questions. He did bring up, you know, the fact that he wants to hire a, a new coach uh, as as quickly as possible, but he doesn't want to rush it. Uh, he, you know, he certainly included Greg Berhalter in that conversation, although was very careful not to talk uh, individually or personally about anybody as this as this goes along. So, on a whole, like I said, I think. The fact that there was a warm body was good and that this warm body, at least on the surface, looks capable. I'll, I'll take that at this point. Did he begin his answer by saying, well, Alexi, to show that he knows who you are? <laughs> or that's a good question. You know, anytime that uh, that happens that, you know, you're being uh, spun, if you will. Uh, his official start date is August 2nd, but he'll be involved in the coaching search earlier than that. I thought it was fascinating how much of the discourse surrounding uh, this appointment has centered on dual national recruitment. Um, I don't think there's another country 
that's as hyper aware of this issue as the United States. It's almost like you're hiring a college football coach with all this talk about recruitment. But he was asked about that and he gave a very interesting response. Well, I do think that he recognizes that that is, I mean, so for example, when I asked that question, one of the things he could have said was, you know what? The, uh, the leadership over the last four years has done a really good job. And I don't think that that's debatable. They have done a really good job in wooing these dual uh, nationals, and which has made the, the the pool that much that much stronger. So I think from the outside, and I don't think you needed to be on the on the inside. You can recognize the good that exists, like so, something like that. And so I think he recognizes that in order for him to do his job and to do it well, he damn well better be able to continue that. And I think he recognizes that he can do that. And the lobbying and the recruiting part is a huge part of that job. And this is, by the way, this is a big job. It's not just the U.S. men's national team. It's U.S. women's national team. It's all of the, uh, of the many teams that you have out there. They've taken off some of it from his plate in terms of uh, uh, refereeing and that kind of stuff, but it's still a pretty big job. And the U.S. men's national team component, which we focus on, uh, obviously, uh, isn't, going to, doesn't, isn't going to take up all of his time. Do we think he's already called Folarin Balogun? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that there are already others that are keeping in contact. And, you know, I, I, I think that he, that would be on the on the list of, uh, of things to do. Uh, it was also interesting, Mossy, uh, some of the questions and he has since done interviews um, and I don't have all of those. I haven't seen all of them. I've read some of them and I've listened to some of them. And, we're, and we are efforting, as they say, to get him on the biggest and best show, which is the State of the Union, and he will come on, at which point we will put these questions to him and we won't let him off the hook. Um, and, I, and, and, and I hope that, uh, that he does that. But it was interesting the amount of questions as to style of play. And, you know, this gets, this, this gets thrown around a whole lot. And we're going to talk a, a whole lot more about that later on in the, in the pod and what the U.S. style of play is. But Inevitably, all those buzzwords came up, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, going, you know, going forward and playing with speed and, uh, you know, spirit and all these things that are not really definable, but everybody use. I've never seen any coach or GM or technical director or sporting director ever get up there and say, we don't want any possession. We want to stay as far away from the opposition goal as possible. All right. We don't want to have any um, uh, spirit. We don't want to have any character. We don't want to pass the ball. We don't want to pressure the other team in any possible way. And we want to be as defensive as possible. That is our identity. That is our philosophy going forward. When he worked for the FA, he put together a document about England's DNA. And that document has been getting a lot of praise on Twitter the last few days. To me, it just read like a bunch of generalities and platitudes and obvious stuff that anyone would say. So I agree with you. <laughs> well, this is a probably a, a whole pod in and of itself of of the way that it's, I, I, this probably applies to other sports, too, in the way that we are trying to put reason to a, a game that, as we both know, sometimes has no reason. And we're trying to justify it and we're trying to make sense of why things happen. And so we attach words and we attach, you know, buzz phrases to, to this and that. And we write books and we have X's and O's and all that kind of stuff. And that's not to say that, that the game can't be broken down and people can't be incredibly smart and strategize as, as, to, as to what's going on. But a lot of it, as you say, is just fluff. There continues to be this raging debate as to whether his lack of connection to American soccer is a feature or a bug. Mm. There's a type of person on Twitter who thinks the fact that he's an outsider is the most appealing part of this appointment, while others are saying, no, wait a minute, American soccer is unique and complicated. 
and not having much of an understanding of it is going to be a challenge for him. I, I think it will be a challenge. And again, you know, th this goes back to, I always, I wonder, oh God, I would have loved to have been in on the, uh, the process of hiring and to, to see how prepared or unprepared some of these candidates were. And you like to think that since he got the gig, that he impressed from the start and that he came in prepared, that he had done his homework and would have an understanding. And again, while, you know, while he does have a history having coached many years before in Little Rock, Arkansas and Kansas City, and so there is a, a connection to, to it, he, you know, he's been out of the American scene for, for a while. And, and he or anybody else in that position has to get their feet wet and will learn over time. But you would prepare for this interview with I would think, doing the homework of understanding some of the challenges that were out there. Understanding everything from the pro-rel, uh, evergreen, catnip type of discussion that goes on to pay-to-play, to the Gio Reyna situation, all of these different things you would think that somebody coming in for that interview would, uh, would have an, under, uh, an understanding. And he continually said, listen, uh, I know what I know, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I know what I know, but I also know that there are things that I don't know. And that is, that's legitimate. And I, I think that that is fair for him to say that he is, he is going to learn. The question is, and I think this is where, if you're talking to Cindy Parlocone or J.T. Batson or anybody else that was involved in this process, the reason why they have given him the keys here is because they believe that when he learns everything about American soccer, the good, bad, and the ugly, and really gets a look underneath the hood, that he has the, intel the intellect and the history and the, and the capacity and the talent to do some things differently. Is he fundamentally going to change everything? I, I would think if he was here, he would say, there's only so much that you can do from that position. Sometimes we put too much power and focus on this position as if it's going to completely be able to change everything in soccer. And that's not necessarily the case. But when he gets an understanding and a better understanding of it, they believe that he's talented enough to do some good things going forward. An interesting take I've read is that American soccer is still too impressed by a British accent. Mm -hmm. And some people would have preferred someone with a Latino background. And we don't want to turn this into identity politics too much, mm -hmm. but have you read that? And what do you sure, make of that? Sure, sure. I, I still think, and this this is decades old. You know, my, my, my father coached soccer uh, when, I was, when I was a kid. Because he was Greek, okay? Not because he played soccer, knew anything about soccer, was good at soccer, but he was a foreigner and he had a Greek accent and he was the father of a, of a local kid. And so they, uh, so they brought him out. And this has played out for decades and decades and decades. And it goes back to the insecurity that we have, the inferiority complex that we have, and the desperation, I'll be honest, the desperation that we have to have this sport coached, explained, even administered by people that have a background, whether it's them individually or just the fact that they are of a, you know, uh, a nation, as many of us all are, and that that somehow is better. But we're sitting here in 2023, and as I said on the, on the pod earlier this week, there is plenty of intrinsic knowledge. There is plenty of quality. There is plenty of talent that understand the game, and yet there are still many that believe that if it comes from anywhere outside of the U.S., then it has to be better. And if it comes from the U.S., it has to come from somebody or some entity that 
directly or indirectly is coming from outside of the U.S. But anything developed in the American way or any person developed in the American way by virtue simply of them being of America is less than somebody else when it comes to soccer. And that, that has dissipated over the years, but it is still absolutely a part of American soccer. And, you know, I hope that it goes away, but you see it, as we, as we said, from top to bottom, on the field and off the field. Do you think because he's an outsider, he'll feel a certain pressure to hire an American coach so you don't have two outsiders interesting, running interesting. the show? I, I, I don't. I mean, he seems to be, like I said, confident in what he is doing. You know, and and even actually, I, I thought it was it was interesting. You know, we talked about being um, not just excited about it, but at times, you know, a little scared and in a good way, not in a, not in a bad way. And so I know I, I I I think he's going to do what he feels is going to get the job done as he should. Now he's a smart guy, and so he understands politics. He understands you know the way things play. I'm not sure how comfortable he is in the public forum. And keep in mind, Ernie Stewart was really low-key. And this is a guy who played for the U.S. This is a guy who had a, a certain stature and was well-known. And that, for me, it, it's, it's, it's not concerning, but I want, I want big, bold personalities from the Soccer Federation. We need leaders, all right, that are leaders not only in terms of the things that they do and the things that they say, but the way in which they do them, the way in which they say things, the way in which they hold themselves. And I, I, I want them to be bigger than life. I want them to be characters. I want them to demand your attention in the things that they are, that they are doing. I'm not sure he, he can or wants to be that. And I'm not even sure necessarily if, if he needs to be that, if you're going to have somebody else come in either in the general manager spot and or the coaching spot that is that bigger than uh, bigger than life type of personality. But I, I'm, I'm not sure that, to, to your point, that he's under any more pressure uh, now to pick a quote unquote American relative to anybody else. Well, as you mentioned, we are efforting an interview with him. We'll see if uh, Sean Sullivan has the juice to make that happen. And if he does, <laughs> we'll get to ask him all these questions on the pod. We will. And, you know, and as I have said before, and, and then we'll, uh, we'll move on from this, because this is, this is big news, and this is exciting news, and this is a, a much-needed step forward. I, I wish him all the luck in the world. I want him to do well. And you know, this is just the first interaction that we have all kind of had with him. And while I wasn't sitting back going, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. I, I also didn't come out of it saying, we're screwed. To the, to the contrary, I think that they, they have put in place a man who, as we said, is excited, um, who has experience, that checks boxes, that understands that he has plenty to learn, as anybody in that position would, and I think is excited about the opportunity to do something for the U.S. And he, and he talked about that, and he talked about you know, watching this team and watching MLS and watching soccer grow in this country. And so that, for me, that's where I perked up, and that's where I was, all right, he, he understands that... He, that his responsibility isn't just to soccer, isn't just to a soccer team. Ultimately, it's a responsibility to a country. And that's, that's a good thing that I think he recognizes that. But I, I look forward to m many more details and many, much more meat on the bone, if you will, going forward. 
I said at the top that uh, as soon as we're done taping, I'm heading over to the Fox lot to cover CCL. The uh, semifinal first leg between Philadelphia and LAFC will be played tonight. By the time you hear this podcast, that match will have already occurred. The semifinals got underway on Tuesday night with an all-Mexican matchup. Tigres claimed a 2-1 home win over Leon. It was a frenetic first well, half. Exactly, yeah. Victor Davila scored first for Leon, and late in the half, uh, Sebastian Cordova and Luis Quinones uh, scored goals for Tigres. Uh, it kind of slowed down in the second half. Tigres took it 2-1, so they have a slim advantage. The away goals rule is in effect, so a 1-0 Leon win next week, and they would advance. Uh, what did you make of this one? All right, so first off, Guzman was incredible uh, in goal and it kind of saved uh, what could have been a problem, right? Um, uh, who's the guy on the, on the right? Cordoba? Uh, who's the uh, left-footed guy? Uh, Quinones. Wonderful. Guignac didn't do a whole lot. Uh, had some opportunities, but he is the, obviously a star. And he's the guy, you know, so. But, but it was a friend, like you said, just back and forth and back and forth in the spaces that opened up. And regardless of if it's LAFC or Philly, uh, I, think, I think they're going to have their hands full if, uh, if Tigas pull this one out in the second uh, leg. Lots of U.S. Open Cup action as well, including a major upset, USL's Monterey Bay beating San Jose. Yeah, so all sorts of tournaments going on. Um, and, you know, the U.S. Open Cup now, I think, in its 108th year, I mean, a, a tournament that has been around, you know, sometimes we, we, we kick ourselves for what we aren't uh, when it comes to American soccer. And sometimes we also have to pat ourselves on the back for, for what we are and the history that actually exists, if you care to... Uh, access it. And this is one of those things when it comes to the Lamar Hunt uh, U.S. Open Cup, a wonderful tournament that really hasn't quite found its legs uh, in terms of the consciousness out there of uh, of America or even of the, the soccer community out there. But if you do get into it, immediately you are you are sucked in for many of the reasons you know, that people watch Wrexham and these types of things, because these oftentimes are smaller teams from smaller types of uh, of markets that are playing up against what the big boys would be in terms of MLS. And so even though we didn't have a lot of cup sets uh, yesterday, and we are, again, we were recording this on uh, on Wednesday night, and there's a whole slew of other games that are going to go on. So by the time you're listening to this, there will have been, I guarantee, some other uh, cup sets. But congratulations to Monterey Bay for beating San Jose one uh, one nothing, and uh, you know, in doing so, providing that moment uh, and galvanizing the club and uh, and their fan base, and doing what we want to have happen, which is the is those you know those uh, those Cinderella types of stories. You know, my Detroit City FC bows out to the loons, although for about 55 minutes, they were in there, they were leading. And then I think you saw the quality on the field, but you also saw the difference between some of these levels in terms of the depth, the ability to put on uh, players that are much better, even the ability to start players uh, that are your kind of second string at times, and then bring on reinforcements if and when you, if and when you need them. But I, I love this tournament. Um, I wish that more people uh, were able to see it or sought it out, but it has to it has to make a home of its own. And maybe in this world of the Wrexhams that we're that we're talking about, maybe U.S. Open Cup finds a way to be something that people haven't seen or to be something uh, different. So. Uh, they can they continue on, and we'll see ultimately who uh, who ends up uh, winning that. And the MLS teams are all coming in. The next round 
the, the final batch of MLS, MLS teams come in. Remember, Sacramento Republic made it all the way to the final last yep. year, and we had their GM, Todd Denovan, on the pod. Yes, so we if did. Monterey Bay can embark on a similar run, we do like to shine a light on these stories. It's, it, it's fun, and it's all American soccer out there. Uh, and let's be honest. It doesn't matter whether it's men's, women's, or co-ed naked. As long as people are kicking a ball in America, I, I'm all over it. Co-ed naked, I would definitely yeah. watch. You would. I mean, that, that ratings? Huh? Well, okay, go ahead. Uh, MLS this upcoming weekend, uh, one of the big games, New England hosting Cincinnati. Those two teams level on points atop the East. Yeah. Oof. I mean, I, just, I think it's hard to stop New England right now. I mean, I, I, I don't see Cincinnati going in there instead, uh, into New England and finding a way out with Bruce Arena and company and what they're doing. Bruce Arena, I know they had a down year last year, yep. but man, that guy knows what he's doing, huh? Yeah, he does. There's a reason why he's, <laughs> he's been around for a while. And you know, in the same way that, well, look, I'm not comparing Bruce Arena to Sir Alex, but I guess I am in a little, in, in a way. Only in the sense that in, in this day and age where we talk so much about age and the, and the benefits or you know, the challenges that come with it, your ability to evolve with the game as a coach, I think, is, is crucial. It doesn't mean you don't take your kind of uh, uh, your your personality and characteristic that you that you believe in, but you have to be able to evolve and change. And I think Bruce Arena, people will say, oh, you know, he's still Bruce. He is, but I think he has changed, and I think he's recognized when and if to pull on the what would be, I guess, traditional ways of doing things, and when to maybe go in some different directions. And I guarantee that while Bruce Arena is still Bruce Arena. The things that he does in 2023, he wouldn't do 10 years ago, he wouldn't do 20 years ago, and he certainly wouldn't do 30 years ago in terms of the teams that uh, he has done. But he has done it at every single letter, and but for that blip of not qualifying the uh, World Cup team when he was brought in on an emergency basis, um, he is and will continue to be a living legend when it comes to the game. You recently called him the best coach in U.S. national team history in yep. response to an Ask Alexi question. They posted that clip on Twitter, and Rob Stone responded to it. He thought it was so obvious that it was a ridiculous discussion to even have. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's relative to a World Cup and doing well in a World Cup, it is. But, you know, Rob Stone's a smart guy and he recognizes that there is nuance when it comes to the best. And it's obviously subjective. And my definition of the best might be different than Rob Stone's definition of the best. But he, he I mean, he, as the kids would say, he stands for uh, Bruce Arena. They still say that, right? Can you still say stands? I believe so. Any kids yeah. here? Yeah. All right. I'm getting the thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he definitely uh, is a huge, huge Bruce Arena fan. It gets kind of uncomfortable at times when we're out with Bruce. But. That term, standing for somebody, yes. that's a reference to an Eminem song yes, many years ago. He's introduced that term into the lexicon. Yes, it, yes, he, yes it has. Uh, yes, he has. Yes. Right. Uh, yeah. Another good one, Nashville hosting Atlanta. We know MLS really trying to cultivate this rivalry. Uh, last time out in Atlanta's 2-1 win over Chicago, Giacomakis came off with a hamstring injury. See, that's Sounds point. like it's not as serious as initially feared. He might play. If he starts, uh, he has a chance to equal an MLS record. He has scored in his first five career MLS starts. The record is six. Taylor Twelman scored in his first so six career MLS starts. So he has potential to break twil Taylor Twelman's record. To equal it. Oh, my God. Ice that guy up, shoot him up, do whatever <laughs> it has to do to get him to score a goal. All right? I can't have Taylor Twellman, uh, you know, holding that over uh, anybody. Yeah, he's a fellow Greek. He, he's doing well, and we we've talked, you know, we talk year after year when these signings happen, and 
it's the best laid plans, but it doesn't always work out. And that's the nature of the beast anywhere in the world, right? Uh, but especially coming into a league like MLS, where there is so much to adapt to and and you have to be able to, and, and sometimes difficult, and whether it's the travel or the field surfaces uh, or the manufactured parody, uh, parody that you have. Not to, not to mention, you're oftentimes coming to a new country, a new language, you're bringing your family, all those, diff all those different things. And sometimes it takes a while, and sometimes it never actually clicks. And that he has been able to do that and come in and do exactly what he was hired to do, and by the way, the most difficult thing to do in the game, which is to score goals, that's uh, pretty, pretty good. Uh, finally, the FS1 game, uh, Minnesota hosting Dallas. I should say, by the way, uh, Nashville, Atlanta is on Fox. And then uh, Minnesota, Dallas on FS1. Nice Western Conference showdown. This is up in Minnesota, right? Correct. Oof. All right. So, hey, Susan Company, uh, head up to uh, check out the loons here. Uh, this would, if, if I had to bet on this, it, it would take me forever to figure out what, what to do here. Because yes, Minnesota has, uh, has kicked on even without Renoso, but it, uh, Dallas, Dallas is good at times. Times are really good. Sometimes, you know, they, they falter so far. But I'm still, okay, I'm still going to go with the loons just because it's the only thing that's the, 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 that, that makes me do that is because they're playing at home. That's it. All right. All right. All right. And look, there's plenty of other games out there uh, going on. And so there's a full slate of MLS stuff that uh, you can check out there, uh, either like Mossy said, uh, on uh, Fox or FS1 or obviously uh, Apple out there. So have at it until your heart's uh, content. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a trip around Europe. Don't go anywhere. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Okay, welcome back. All right, Mossy, uh, let's take a trip uh, trip around Europe. And as we said, we were recording here on Wednesday. And the biggest game, I don't know if it's arguably, but the biggest game of the EPL season has just concluded. And in, in doing so, I think, has decided the title. Would you, would you agree? Uh, Man City hosting Arsenal, it ends up being 4-1. Uh, to one. Yeah, for me, this was an anti-climax. It was men amongst boys. Frankly, 4-1, I think Arsenal even got off light for how one-sided this game was. Holland was sensational, making a mockery of suggestions that he's just a goal scorer. His link-up play was Benzema-like, and he dished out two assists, both to De Bruyne, who was out of this world, and then Holland got his goal uh, at the end, his 33rd of the season, which sets a new record for a 38-game campaign, surpassing Mo Salah. So yeah, uh, right now the table still reads Arsenal two points ahead, but Manchester City have played two fewer games, and I think they are going to blow past them and win the title fairly comfortably at this point. Yeah, I mean, this it ended up not even being a game, and that's a credit, I think, first and foremost to, uh, to City. And they were far and away the better team. All I could have scored five, six goals. I mean, and I'm not talking about half chances. These are full on, like, 
eyes wide open, put it in the back of the net types of uh, types of thing uh, ty- types of chances. His finishing actually let him down right. a little bit today until it's the crazy. very end. And if he hadn't scored that goal, I would have come here and argued that this was maybe his best game of the season, which would have been the all-time hipster tape because this guy's <laughs> had games where he scored five goals. But I was that impressed with his all-around play. To me, it was the best I've ever seen. Well, him. He, put, he, he pulled his hair down. His, uh, he put his hair down and ended up getting, uh, getting the goal. On a recent podcast, I wondered aloud if Erlen Holland could win the Ballon d'Or without having played at the World Cup. And there is an interesting Holland versus Messi, club versus country debate brewing. Uh, the great Michael DeCourcy of the Sporting News uh, texted me this past week and he said he was conducting an informal survey of soccer people. And he asked me if I had to vote today, who would I vote for, Holland or Messi? My response, and I think the article came out today, uh, was that I would go with Messi because I think this is the last award in which we still have to pay off Messi winning the World Cup. Um, and then we can move on. But I did caveat it by saying that if City win the treble and Holland continues in the pace he's on, which means finishing with close to 60 goals this season, it will make things very interesting because there will be a sentiment that, hey, we know the World Cup is big, but it's only seven games versus yeah. what this guy did over a whole season. So where do you come down? Yeah. On and there's a part of me that doesn't want to punish Erlen Holland for where he was born. Right. <laughs> for the national team that he plays with. And we've seen this over, over the years. And yet, I think I'm willing to punish him when it comes to Messi. Maybe that's the ultimate tribute to to Messi and how important and big and meaningful and obviously good and talent talented that he is. But you know, he was also uh, born not necessarily that you have to be, but he plays for Argentina and Erling Holland doesn't. So yeah, I'm okay in this in this situation absolutely voting for Messi over uh, over Holland. And you know, Messi does it on two fronts. And people are going to argue, yeah, but Holland doesn't have the opportunity to do it on two fronts. Well, he does. He just doesn't have, he's not going to get the service. He's not going to get the amount of uh, chances that Messi is going to get playing for a team like Argentina. So them's the breaks, my friend. That's just the, that's the way that it goes. But I think Messi's winning it. I don't even think there's a chance that Holland uh, wins it right now. I'm told our former producer, Francis Arthur, is in the control room. She is the world's biggest Messi fan is, and is taking shots at me for even raising this question. For even raising it? Oh, I think it's, it's a completely legitimate and fair question to raise. And that's how, that, I mean, that just shows how good this guy is and has been. And, and keep in mind, you know, we talked about Giacomacchi's, uh, in the you know in the last segment again he came in and yes he had a pedigree of scoring goals but you never know if it's going to translate and yes he's doing it for you know, arguably the best team in the world so he's going to have plenty of opportunities but you still got to be able to do that and so it was money well spent and you know in a year this conversation is being had and it's not that we weren't we didn't know who he was, but it was always he's you know he's, he's up and coming. Where's he going to go and all that kind of stuff? But now, even before what might be another move at some point, we're talking about him being the best player in the world, and that is that has happened within the year because he came in and did exactly what he was paid all that money to do, and did it at an even higher level than he was doing it before. I will say, though, on Messi's behalf, and again, I would go with Messi, sure. but his PSG numbers are pretty impressive, too. It's not like he's only doing it for country. But uh, some, you know, an Erlen Holland fan would say, yeah, but put Erlen Holland on PSG and see what the hell happens. <laughs> um, so anyway, so this, you know, this game happens. And uh, to your point, yes, it was, you know, kind of a letdown. I was, I was really interested in, and 
I don't know why I was surprised because as you know, when it comes to insufferability, um, Arsenal folks are, are up there, but for the neutrals coming into this game, the desire to see Arsenal fail and to bottle this, I think it, it seems to trump the disdain for the, you know, the nouveau riche arrogance of Man City winning it yet again. And that in and of itself is is quite a feat by Arsenal. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised by how many people want Arsenal to fail. I've found this fascinating as well. When it was Manchester City and Liverpool battling for the title, I understand why Manchester United fans preferred City because Liverpool, that's their eternal rival. But when it's Manchester City, Arsenal, I didn't expect it to be so unanimous that they would prefer City to win it. I didn't think there was that much animus towards Arsenal, but apparently there is. I mean, Piers Morgan's power knows no bounds, obviously. <laughs> uh, but, it, but it was, you know, it just, it, it went on and on and on. And it was, it, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty incredible. So still work to be done. But for the most part, I think, unless something ridiculous happens, this is going to be yet another Man City, uh, City title. And Arsenal, it, 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 you know, you, you want to tell them, hey, this has still been an incredible year. And you're only going to get better. You're still a very young team. But it ended up, I looked at Arsenal as they're afraid to win it. This group is afraid to win it. And maybe a year from now, they're not going to be. And who knows, maybe a year from now, maybe you put Matt in goal. And that's really the, the, the final missing component. Ramsdale was shaken up after that third city goal. I thought it was going to be Matt Turner right, time. But... Right, right. I wonder what Matt Turner thinks. I, I tried to put myself in, uh, in his mindset because... And I've talked about the ruthlessness of players. And, you know, I've never been a backup goalkeeper, but I've, I've, I've been a player. I know for some of you out there, it's debatable, but I have. And I, I wonder what he thinks. Well, he, because, you know, his contract, he's, he's going to make plenty of money. His contract is secure. He's a, he doesn't want to be a, the, the second goalkeeper, but he is, and he recognizes that. But is there any part of him that says, if we're going to win it, and we're going to win it after multiple decades here. I'd like it to be on my watch. Well, you know, every time Ramsdale concedes a goal, the great Matt Doyle is always ready with that tweet. Matt Turner would have saved that. <laughs> and I wonder if that thought crosses Matt Turner's head when Ramsdale gives up a soft. Oh, absolutely. Goal. As it should. I mean, we can talk <laughs> about Wally Pipping and all that kind of stuff. And you, you take your opportunities where they are. And this is what some people have a hard time grasping is, well, maybe they don't, but this is where that gets down to that ruthlessness. There is a part of every athlete that wants so badly to win and to compete that that's even a part of him or her that is at the expense of others. And I guess that's what makes people great as, as athletes. But, you know, I, if, if they were to win the title, yes, Matt would be a part of a, of a title-winning Arsenal team and a part of history forever. But it's that much, especially for a goalkeeper, it's I, I, you want it to happen on your watch. And so who knows? Maybe a year from now, it is on his watch. Uh, no such title race in Spain. Barcelona running away with the La Liga title, even more so after Real Madrid's latest defeat. On Tuesday, they fell 4-2 away to Girona. The big story here, our old friend Tati Castellanos scored all four Girona goals. First player to score four against Real Madrid in a La Liga game since the 1940s. And actually, the first player to score four against Real Madrid in any competition since 10 years ago, Robert Lewandowski did it for Dortmund in a Champions League semifinal match that I covered at Fox. Uh, just an incredible performance. Uh, 
obviously MLS Twitter was uh, reveling in this. Uh, what did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a wonderful story and a wonderful moment for him. And yes, there is this attachment because he's one of ours and he came through that system. And I guess it's, you know, for some it's proof, proof of concept and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, here's a guy that was baptized on the diamond, you know, uh, over there in, uh, in New York and scored a boatload of goals and got his move that he wanted. And then, you know, it was kind of out of sight out of mind and we didn't really think about him a whole lot and to remind us uh that's a hell of a way that's a hell of a way to do it i will say castellanos is a tricky one in terms of that proof of concept you could argue that he highlights the lack of respect that still exists for mls this is a young argentinian center forward with his ability who put up the numbers he put up in his last couple years in mls and they couldn't get a single european club to make a big offer for him he was dead set on going to Europe, so City Football Group had to step in, move him to another one of their clubs in Girona. Now that he's doing well in La Liga and he scored four goals in a game against Real Madrid, presumably this summer he'll get a nice move. And because it was technically a loan from NYCFC to Girona, even if he never steps foot in New York again, if he sold this summer, it will be NYCFC selling him to yep. that European club. He'll show up on those lists of biggest MLS sales. Everybody will hold it up as this great success story. And to some degree it is. I mean, if that money goes into NYCFC's coffers and they can say that they help develop him into the sort of player that can succeed in Europe. But it still bothers me that he had to go to Hirona first and do well there to validate that he was a player worth spending big money on, yeah, that a European club wouldn't do that. He's not a player now right. for, having, <laughs> for having done that, right? He's still a, a great goal scorer and a great goal scorer is a great goal scorer. But you know, this is, this is the world in, we li we, in which we live in. As MLS embarks on this strategy, which I think is the correct one, they still have to fight some of these biases. I feel like there's a MLS tax both ways. When they go to buy a young South American, they have to pay above market value. And then when they go to sell them, they often get below market value. So you don't get quite the profit that you normally would in these situations. So I think it is something that MLS is still grappling with. Eh, comes with the territory. <laughs> I think they're, they're going to be all right. Incidentally, congratulations to Ty. Incidentally, Barcelona playing as we speak. Perhaps Sean Sullivan or Francis Arthur can update us on that score <laughs> as we speak. All right, what else we got? Uh, in Germany, um, the title race continues there. On Friday, Borussia Dortmund away to Eric Winalda's former club, Bochum. And then on Sunday, Bayern Munich will be home to Hertha Berlin. Dortmund with a one-point lead in the standings with five to play. All right, by the way, uh, Sean just told us it's 2-1, uh, Ryle. Uh, they were down 2 nothing, and Lewandowski just got a goal So as we, as we were listening to this. So not that Barcelona's going to care, but, uh, but oh well. Um, we are going to, you know, I think uh, going forward, kind of, you know, flush out what, what's going to happen to Gio. Because I think, it's, I, I think it's fascinating, especially given all the stories and everything that's kind of happened over the last uh, six months uh, with him. And it's, it's not going well um, for him. And I'm not crying for him. Nobody, nobody is because he's going to be fine. But come next fall he needs to be a place where he is he is playing he is in and out he's you know that super sub and now he can't get back onto the team and stuff like now like that but it's obviously that i don't think he has a future with with uh, with Dortmund i agree i think these goals he's scoring are actually papering over the cracks because he's not a center forward he his role should not be that of a goal scoring super sub He's a playmaker, and this has been another lost year in terms of developing those skills. So, yeah, I know some people are clinging to the goal he scored. The, the goals per minute is impressive, but I don't know what that means in terms of his overall development as a player. 
And and we look at a Gio or any of these a number of these uh, national team players in, in two ways. There's one, there's the club situation, but it's also relative to the national team, right? So wh- what we should do is uh, next week maybe we'll give a, a you know top five landing spots if we had our way, if we were pulling the strings. Well, we did that for Pulisic, and it was a massively successful segment. So why not recreate it for Gio Reyna? Right back to the well for uh, for Gio Reyna. All right, we'll do that. Anything else? Uh, yeah, we'll end with uh, Napoli, who could clinch the Serie A title this upcoming weekend. They're home to Salernitana, and then second place, Lazio, is a way to enter. Uh, if Napoli were to win and Lazio did not win, then it would be all over. Napoli would clinch their first Scudetto since a Diego Maradona-inspired triumph in 1990. That's great. I mean, did you see the uh, the uh, the pictures from Napoli of the uh, the Vespas yep. and the, the celebration? It was so beautifully uh, Italian and just just wonderful. And they're already gearing up they're, as as they should. And it's gonna be a it's gonna be a big old uh, big old uh, Napolitano uh, party. And and they deserve a big old party for uh, for what they have done. So that is it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, uh, yeah, we got some. Uh, we got some Ask Alexi. Oh, yeah. Don't go anywhere. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your uh, questions, your comments, concerns. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi, or you can use uh, Ask Mossy. Uh, you can send it on all the uh, social media platforms out there. Uh, keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi, or you can call in our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. What do we got this uh, show, Mossy? We have a voicemail. Let's take a listen right now. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Andrew from Dallas. I was, uh, I'm almost caught up on the podcast. i got one episode left. i got a question for you when it comes to the way that the U.S is trying to play the game specifically when uh, when it comes to our nat- our men's national team. So back in the 90s, early 2000s, we played a lot more of a rugged game, um, a lot more of a, I guess you'd say like a rough and tumble kind of game, which was difficult, it seemed like, for European teams to adjust and play against. Um, you know, we almost made it to the semifinals, I think it was 2002. And um, it seems like now... We're because we have so many players playing in Europe. We're trying to play their game, a lot more of a polished um, European kind of game, and we don't really have our own. And it seems to me like if we're going to try and do that, we're going to be constantly playing catch up to European teams. Who I mean, we might be able to catch up if they stop working on their game, but let's all be real, they're not going to. So I'm just kind of wondering your take on on that, on what kind of game you think we should be playing and best fits us because we're, I feel like we're just going to be chasing European teams for years because they've been doing it for so much longer in the same style. So hope to hear from you. Um, have a great week. Thanks. All right. Uh, thank you, Andrew from Dallas. Uh, it's a good question. It's a, it's a big question. And it's a question, you know, we were talking earlier in the show about Matt Crocker and, and, you know, these people in positions of leadership that can, 
kind of define what a style is? Well, first off, I think I think it's important to understand where does a style of play come from? Uh, obviously, it's relative to a country and culture. In many countries and cultures, it's established over a lengthy period of uh, not just decades, but you know, century. And it is reflective of that culture. And so it can be uh, every influenced from every, everything from uh, weather to um, you know military to uh, to language to um, demographics. All, all those different all, all those different things can play a part into why a certain country and culture plays a uh, a certain way. Then you look at it at a country like the United States, which obviously is very different in terms of our history, in terms of the competition of other sports and what has been king traditionally over the years, and our makeup, uh, our unique diversity uh, when it comes to our country, which I think makes it uh, the greatest country in the world, but it also poses problems in terms of getting a collective understanding and more importantly, a collective acceptance of how we want to play. And this diversity comes from so many people coming from so many different places and those places having established identities. So everybody is bringing different identities that have been established elsewhere into <laughs> this proverbial melting pot and then asking everybody to pick one of those identities, which is next to impossible. And so really what you're asking in the United States is we're going to have to be a mixture of all of those. And that's difficult. I get 100 Americans in a room that are involved in soccer and I ask them what the beautiful game is, I'm gonna get a hundred different answers. As opposed to maybe some other countries and cultures where there's gonna be a whole lot more agreement and maybe it's much more homogenous in, the, in, uh, in that way. When it comes to the US style, yes, Andrew, I think that it's fair to say that over the last, you know, let's just keep it to the last four decades, shall we say, that the style has developed from I hesitate to say a rudimentary, but a much more direct style of play. And I would argue influenced much, much more heavily from, you know, the England part of the world than others. Uh, and when you say that, and I know it's stereotypical, but it's, you know, much more long ball, much more physical, um, you know, less emphasis on shorter passing, less emphasis on possession and an attempt at least to be much more efficient. And even, you know, he, he, he referenced uh, 2002, a handball away from going to the semifinals. That type of team was a team that absorbed much more pressure, countered. And oftentimes that is what U.S. teams did because either we didn't have or we didn't think we had the ability to maintain possession in the way that other teams uh, were able to do uh, against us, and so we couldn't combat that. Uh, I don't. I don't know where we are right now. I think we are much more heavily influenced now from the way that the world of soccer has has evolved, and we're not the only ones. There are plenty of countries out there that are trying to do things. In some cases, and I would even argue this from a U.S. perspective, trying to do things that are beyond their means. I mean, we still see people playing out of the back nowadays that have no business playing out of the back, either as a team or individually in terms of uh, the talent. But we have been 
conditioned to think that this is the way forward and that this is beautiful soccer and that this is how you need to play if you are going to be quote unquote evolved. That's a whole nother conversation, but it is part of, uh, of this conversation. So to your point, Andrew, where are we now? I think, you know, if you look at, for example, the game against England, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that game would have been much more about a U.S. absorbing pressure and then finding ways to hit on the counter with the speed that we have and the quality that we have. And absorbing pressure takes much more of a physical and mental toll and requires, I think, much more of a physical and mental capacity to be able to do so on a continue, uh, continual basis, as opposed to being more, for lack of a better word, proactive, which really means you're keeping the ball much more. That requires a much greater level of individual talent. I'm not saying we're there, but I do think that there has been an emphasis from, from Greg Berhalter, let's say, on to play out of the back, which everybody kind of does, to keep the ball and to use the advantages even though they, that there is risk involved, but to use the advantages and the rewards that come from, uh, from doing something like that. I don't know if we are ever going to get to a point where we all agree that this is how the United States should play. And I think that's much more a reflection of, like I said, the diversity of thought in terms of how we think about the game and the lack or the, di the, the challenge of becoming collectively organized. And this goes back maybe mostly to, uh, you know, Matt, who we were talking about earlier, taking this uh, taking this job. It's a big job because at some point somebody has to say, you know what, this is the way that we are going to play or at least try to play. And in doing so, they are going to shut out a whole other group of fans, but also players that play a different way. I'm talking about a national team right now. And in being exclusive or exclusionary, I guess it would be, that's kind of how you have to do it. And we, I think as a country, focus a lot of our attention on being much more inclusive. And so maybe it runs counter to even philosophically how we think about our country, let alone how we think about soccer. And I'd like to recommend a book to Andrew, What Happened to the U.S. Men's National Team, The Ugly Truth About the Beautiful Game. It was written by an author, Stephen Mandis, who came on this podcast to plug the book. Remember mm -hmm. that? Yep. Believe it or not, I wrote a blurb for that book. And the thesis is essentially what you just said, Andrew. So Stephen Manis agrees with you. So I, I bet you, you'd enjoy that book. Well, to, to Andrew or anybody else that thinks about this, and, and I think a lot of us think about this because we spend time arguing about what soccer is and what, and, and what soccer isn't. And I have a different idea than you, than you do. And that's, that's, that's okay. But at some point, whether it's a coach or whether it's a technical director, or somebody, somebody has to stand up and say, this is... This is what we are doing, and let the chips fall fall where we uh, where they may. And you know that's not the easiest thing to to do in a country like a uh, country like the United States. And that is one of those challenges that you know I think Matt Crocker is going to face. Is it's impossible to be to be everything to everybody in the United States. And so while it's you know it's commendable to have someone try to do it, I also think you're spinning your wheels and you're wasting valuable time and resources doing it. And so I would recommend to him or anybody else in that position, you're gonna take hits, you're gonna take the slings and arrows, but if this is the way you believe the United States should go forward in terms of how they should play at the national level, 
then do it and go on. And, and like I said, let the chips fall where they may and take all those slings and arrows because if you're constantly bobbing and weaving and you're tr constantly trying to be everything to everybody, you know, as the uh, Aesop's fable go, you try, uh, says you try to please everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. That's it. That's it. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for that. It was uh, one, but a, a lengthy one and a, and a fun topic. And I've, I've spent plenty of hours in bars and hotels and around uh, over the years talking about this. And it's not a conversation that's uh, that's going away. It's a worthy conversation uh, to continue on. All right. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'll give my one. Minute. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my uh, one for the road. And you know, while we use questions in Ask Alexi, I get asked constantly on uh, on social media uh, questions. And um, somebody asked me something interesting the other day about you know my experience in the past. I don't know how to pronounce this person's name, but Samoa Bob, I think it is. Um, but anyway, he was asking me about Phil Anschutz. And for those that don't know Phil Anschutz, uh, he is the head of all the Anschutz Enterprises. And he is also, and part of those enterprises are AEG, the Anschutz Entertainment Group. And for those that know, uh, that is the group that owns the Los Angeles Galaxy. And Phil Anschutz uh, oversees all of this. And the question was, what do you think Phil Anschutz thinks about what the galaxy looks like right now? And does it affect his legacy uh, on MLS and U.S. soccer? Uh, absolutely not. OK, I do know that Phil Anschutz does not like to lose and he does not lose often. But I don't think for a second that the struggles and the real struggles and now multiple year struggles of the Los Angeles galaxy in any way, shape or form diminish um, his profile. He is a living legend when it comes to soccer and his almost, now we're like looking at 30 plus years of investment in MLS and American soccer, uh, has always been about the long play, not the individuals, not one season. It's not one game by any stretch of the imagination. And that's how he looks at business too. But don't think for a second that he doesn't know everything that is going on. And so Samoa Bob actually followed it up and asked me uh, a question about how active Phil Anschutz was when I worked for the Galaxy. And for those that don't, don't know, when I was president of the Galaxy, obviously Phil Anschutz owned the Galaxy. I was also president of the Metro Stars, uh, which he owned, and of the San Jose Earthquakes, which he, which he owned. Uh, Phil Anschutz was sporadic in terms of my contact with him. He was, in the best possible way, hands off. And let's be honest, he had much bigger fish to fry, much bigger parts of that business that I explained that took plenty of his focus and attention. But as I said before, he knew exactly what was going on with the Galaxy business, uh, on and off the field. And, and he cared about it. But he also, you know, in the, in the, in the greatest form of, of business, 101, delegated, and he had people in place 
at the Anschutz Entertainment Group, whether it was Tim Laiwicki on down, that he trusted to make the appropriate uh, decisions. And, you know, if things didn't go well, changes were made. I mean, ultimately, Phil Anschutz, through Tim Laiwicki, fired me. So I, I was fired for things not going well. And there will be those that say, well, why, are, why aren't they doing the same thing with the galaxy? Well, you know, they assess so many different things in decisions uh, like this. But it got me thinking with, uh, what's the guy's, uh, the American over there at uh, Chelsea, what's his name? Uh, Todd Bowley. Todd Bowley, the Todd Bowley effect and ownership and where their influence and input should stop. And I, I, I got to thinking about when I was working uh, with these teams and I was hell bent on bringing the two components of a club together. And that is the business side and the competitive side. And obviously I came from the competitive side and I was being immersed into the business side. And my theory was if and when everybody understood and respected what was going on in other parts of the, com the company that in totality, it would work better. In reality, I look back and it became very difficult to do. And I'm not sure it's impossible to do because you can, I think, respect what others do, even though you're in a completely different side of the business. But I think at times I forced it and therefore the different ways of doing business, I didn't recognize them enough. And so having an owner that is constantly kind of stepping over that line that has kind of been made between the competitive side and the business side, I think it can be problematic. And certainly when you saw Todd Bowley do uh, what he did, where evidently he came down in, into the locker room stuff, that from a cultural perspective over in England, and I would assume elsewhere, was something that is not done a tremendous, uh, a tremendous amount. Now, Owners, they can do whatever the hell they want. They own the they own the team or they own the company, and they are able to do whatever they want. But once you make a decision to do that, it's hard to come back. And there will be th those that say, "Well, to me, that that shows passion. That shows commitment. That shows literal ownership. In that, this is not going the way I want, and I I need you to understand that things need to change." But oftentimes, what it ends up doing is breaching a unwritten type of line that separates the two and your desire to have that impact in a positive way ends up being ends up being negative and i don't know where that line ultimately is drawn but every organization draws it and has that type of separation and as I said before in the past, I tried to bring those two together and almost erase that line. And I think that that's, that's kind of impossible. So you got to be really careful if you are an owner of overstepping even your bounds, even though that you are an owner and doing irreparable, what is the word? Irrevocable? Irreparable damage to your, uh, to your team and ultimately, I guess, to your club. What do you think, Mossy? Wow. <laughs> Did not think you were going to kick it to me at the end of all that. Yeah, but I'm just curious as to, do, do you care if an owner comes down and 
injects him or herself into the proceedings, into the locker room, into and crosses that kind of invisible line? I think more often than not, that is a recipe for disaster. That's that's all I wanted. Just a nice little simple coda, if you will, from Mozzie. Because the people want to hear what you have to say. And I know that this <laughs> is my one for the road. But let us know what you think out there uh, when it comes uh, when it comes to ownership. And maybe it's different culturally, different places. Maybe it's different from sport to sport. But, you know, owners are going to own her. That's what they do. That's what they do. And the best people in leadership positions are able to deal with ownership on a consistent basis and judge them. And that's a, that's an art and a skill in and of itself. All right, Mossy, anything before we go? That's it. Thank you for reviewing and downloading and rating and subscribing and doing all the different things that, uh, that, you, uh, that you do. And hit us up out there, whether it's on uh, social media or calling into our State of the Union podcast hotline. Again, that's 657-549-2297. Next time you hear from me, I, I may be blue in that I may have that, uh, that blue check, check next to my name. But we'll see. He's got my money. Come on, Elon, you know, F fix it. Uh, we will talk to you again uh, next week. Have a wonderful weekend of doing whatever it is you're doing, including watching soccer. And there's plenty uh, of soccer to watch. And we will talk to you again next week on the State of the Union. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day.